Hey, welcome in. It's Downtown, the podcast, episode 27. How did we get to 27? I feel like we just started this. Gary Haskell, how do we get to 27 already? We're consistent. That's, consistency pays off, right? I guess, yeah. yeah. Once a week, we're here doing it, uh, revisiting some great conversations from our daily radio show, uh, Downtown, which airs every day in the Eastern time zones from 4 to 6 p.m. on WZON in Bangor, Maine, WKIT, HD3, FM, streaming audio at our website, downtownwithrichkimball.com, or you could just download the WZON app and uh, get all this as it happens every day. Or do what you're doing now and tune in to uh, our look back at a couple of terrific conversations on Downtown the Podcast, which is brought to you by Cross Insurance, where security meets strength, and by Nice Brewing Company, German-style beer from the woods of Maine. Two very interesting conversations today, actor and activist Mike Farrell and uh, journalist, newscaster, opinion maker, or expresser anyway, and author Chris Matthews. Uh, we're a left of center today, it's okay, but also two pretty thoughtful guys, I think, who try to find some common ground out there. Mike Farrell has been on our show quite a bit, and we had a chance to talk with him about uh, well, where we are in America and how to bridge the gap that seems to keep us polarized as a nation. I want to get right to what's going on in America and cut to the chase here because uh, these are, uh, well, some troubled times to say the least in our country. Mike, how did we get to this place where we're we're so polarized and, and into our own little tribes? Well, I think there's been a lot of um, distance between the people of the country and the people who are in positions of power in the country. And that distance has been allowed to um, I think metastasized to the degree that there's a lot of anger and upset and lost hope and um, expectations that um, have left people vulnerable to someone who um, can play on their most base emotions and take advantage of their anger and their frustration uh, with um, you know some kind of wild promises. I, only I can fix this. I'll fix this. Just listen to me. Don't listen to them. That sort of thing. And I and I think uh, too many people have fallen uh, prey to that. But I don't think. I mean, I think it's something that will be remedied eventually if we care enough to get involved in the issues that are facing us and express ourselves at the ballot box and by writing to our members of Congress and the U.S. Senate. And uh, but but it really involves people caring enough about their country and about what their country means, as well as how it how its policies affect them personally. And that's sometimes a tough, um, tough thing for people to uh, to get a hold of. What role has the media played in getting us to this place? Unfortunately, the media, I think, has been um, significant, uh, significantly negative in that there's the old unfortunate um, media motto, if it bleeds, it leads, which leads to them featuring the uh, most um, screaming siren, you know, uh, the most blood, the most Mm. ugliness, the most salacious, the most um, outrageous kind of things, rather than doing the sort of analysis they used to do. We lost, and during the Reagan years, we lost the uh, idea of equal time, which would mean that 
uh, if somebody if there's an issue that could be argued arguably debated, um, there used to be a requirement on the public airwaves that people would hear both sides. When that was lost, the side with the most money usually is the one that people hear, and that is not always in the best interests of the of the population. What do you think of the biggest obstacles to us finding common ground once again? Boy, um, hard, hard work. Thomas Jefferson said that the, the, the real strength of this nation was in an involved and informed electorate. Uh, people, have, people lack basic information, and they lack a willingness to get involved. Uh, once they uh, allow themselves to get involved, I think the information is available, but they have to be careful about where they look and to be to be sure to double check and triple check and balance make sure that they get balanced views and then make a decision but people who are unwilling to do that people who are just angry and want somebody else to fix it for them uh, aren't helping um, so it, it really it seems to me again I go back to the basic premise if you care about the country if you care about the fundamental premises of the country um, then it seems to me that uh, our, our path forward is pretty clear. But if you care only about your own situation um, and you are therefore threatened by um, people of different races or people of, from different parts of the world that want to come into our country or people who um, you think are stealing your jobs or you know, the, if, if if you allow yourself to be manipulated, I guess I should say, by uh, the forces out there that want to tell you that it's easy, it's simple. We simply go back to the 1950s and forget about the fact that uh, people of color were subjugated and women were subjugated, and that there was uh, there was uh, no real equality of opportunity for people. We're talking with Mike Farrell here on Downtown, and as you know, Mike, I, I teach young people, I teach government, and it becomes a bigger challenge uh, every year uh, to convince them that, first of all, the system can work, but that it works by them getting involved and, and not letting the ugly, ugliness and the distractions keep them away from caring about what happens in Washington and in their home state. Well, bless you for that, because that's exactly what's needed, is them caring enough and, and, and really paying attention. You know, there, we've got people blaring out all over the airwaves, all kinds of stuff on both sides or all sides, some of the most crazy stuff you could imagine. Um, but I think if you put it to the test of truth and reality rather than having allowing somebody to say to you that's fake news or you shouldn't believe that, trust me, don't trust them, uh, there's, there's a price to pay for that. There are a couple of schools of thought here. One is that, uh, yeah, we've gotten down in the dirt, and that's the only way to win is to, to fight fire with fire. Or, or do you think it's best for us to always try to maintain the high ground in these conversations? I, you know, that's my own thought, is that we have to really be uh, scrupulous about sticking to our uh, principles. And that's not sometimes not an easy thing to do when the other side is being really ugly and uh, trotting out just horrific lies and abusing their uh, the weapons they have through the media. Um, but I think fundamentally, um, let me just make a suggestion, if you will. If you look today at the Senate race in Texas, 
there's a young man by the name of Beto, um, uh, Beto O'Rourke, I think it is, but he's an Irish last name. Um, and I've been really impressed with the fact that he step, steps up and speaks his truth and isn't worried about speaking to things that uh, aren't currently de rigueur in, uh, in Texas politics. Um, and I think, you know, somebody that has the courage to do that, instead of getting down and sliming your opponent and trying to say uh, she or he is uh, un- unworthy, untrustworthy, a crook, a thief, a villain, a bad person, uh, instead of that, just saying the truth as best you can articulate it, that seems to me to be the way to win the trust of people. And I, I don't mean to suggest necessarily that uh, Beto is going to win his race, or, uh, but it, it, for me, it's been a pleasure to watch him uh, articulate the reasons why he believes what he does and why he thinks it's best for his state and his country, uh, rather than what a bad guy his opponent is. Mike, you've been working for many years to end the death penalty in California and around the nation as well. The Pope has come out and expressed his thoughts. Does that, in the big picture, will that do anything to help that cause? Well, one hopes, you know, the the, the Catholics who want to believe in the, the Pope's infallibility are going to have to take a look at what he says. Um, I think there is um, difficulty on the parts of people who have long held the belief that the death penalty is um, sometimes necessary or, or appropriate. Um, but I think, you know, the Pope is, um, in, here, we, here we go again, there are, there are different views in the Catholic Church even about this, this Pope. Um, I happen to think he's a, he's a demonstrably sensitive, thoughtful, dedicated, religious man, and that, to me, counts for a lot. Um, and his willingness to wash the feet of sinners, if you will, and uh, and deal with the needs of refugees and get down in, and dirty, but it, down and dirty in the sense of really working down with the lower classes, uh, demonstrates to me somebody who's really a caring person who, who who follows in the footsteps of Jesus, if you happen to believe in, in the Catholic version of Christianity. Um, and uh, I think he will make a difference, ultimately, if he isn't unseated by forces in the Catholic Church that are very orthodox and very um, conservative and uh, are frightened or even uh, even angered by some of the policies that he's put forward. But, you know, we're seeing progress being made, Rich. Um, the state of Washington, the Supreme Court, just recently re- ru- ruled that the death penalty there does not meet constitutional standards. And it did so on a basis of that we have argued for many years is is across the country uh, racial imbalance uh, and uh, speculative uh, uh, prosecution of people based on uh, kind of uh, thoughtless but uh, usually resulting in uh, uh, bad decisions on the parts of prosecutors because they're they're uh, trying to get a quick conviction of somebody rather than really investigating a case to the uh, to be be definitely sure that they have found the rightful perpetrator um and even then um being uh, unwilling to realize that we are wasting a lot of money on a death penalty when you could save money by keeping people in prison for the rest of mm. their natural lives uh, if they did the crime that you want to punish them for
We're talking with Mike Farrell on downtown. Mike, since uh, we spoke with you last, uh, you've lost a couple of members of the MASH family. Could you talk a little bit about uh, what he was like as a person and what it was like working with the talented David Ogden Stiers? I could indeed. Uh, David was a wonderful man, and uh, he and I were very close. Um, He came to the show late, uh, as uh, people who watch MASH know when uh, old ferret face uh, Larry Linville, Frank Burns' (laughs) character, left the show, they decided, the producers, to their credit, decided they wanted to bring in somebody who was a uh, not just a buffoon like the Frank Burns character turned out to be, but not only was he a smart and thoughtful and well-trained, uh, but a very good surgeon, um, unlike the Frank Burns character, and be a match for Hawkeye and BJ. And uh, they, they selected David, uh, who had done a lot of work uh, in, the, in, the, in the business, and he was just delicious. He was just a wonderful guy who played this role to the T's. And he um, he became quickly became a, a close friend of all of us, a member of the family. Um, and David, I think, was the one member of the cast who was um, a li- once the show was over was kind of reluctant to uh, trade, if you will, on being um, uh, Major Winchester. Um, or wanted didn't want to be stuck in that mold because that was a very a character that was very um, apart from mm. his, his personal personality. Um, but he was just a he was a, I think the best trained and certainly one of the finest actors I've ever worked with and and a uh, a really extraordinary man. But when I say best trained, I mean from the point of view of those of us in the cast, David was schooled and had paid attention and had done his work uh, classically, uh, unlike a lot of actors, myself included, who came up through kind of uh, catch-as-catch-can ca- catch process where you, uh, you, know, you get a job and you learn on the job and you hope for another job and uh, study with one person and get an idea about a style and then you study with somebody else and learn another one and then you become a kind of a mutt or a mongrel. <laughs> um, but David was a, just a prince of a guy, uh, and he had a very tough uh, break um, cancer that uh, he tried. He tried to be very quiet about, and um, we talked uh, at uh, many times during the process of his attending to deal with this disease. And finally, he said, uh, "It's uh, they've the doctors have said it's hopeless." So he. Um, he went out with style, if you will, and and the other the other man who we lost uh, a little while before that was uh, one of my one of my closest friends in the cast was Bill Christopher, Father Mulcahy, who uh, also passed away from cancer uh, a couple of years ago now. But um, just uh, a great loss to all of us. Bill was one of the sweetest human beings that ever walked the earth. Um, so the, the you know we lost Harry some time back and um, we just I don't know if you're familiar with well, Thad Mumford right Thad as well Mumford I was just yeah. going to say we just lost Thad Mumford or one of our one of our writers of the last few seasons of the show and a comic genius and um, just a brilliant wonderful guy who uh, struggled in the business initially because he was a uh, African American and. Um, our business, like many other businesses, were kind of reluctant to be open um, to people of other races for a long, unfortunately, a long 
period of time. But but finally, the the business wised up and began to open up to women and members of minority groups and other people who hadn't normally been thought of, and we were all the richer for it. We had uh, Mark Freeman uh, from The Hollywood Reporter on with us. He's been on a number of times. He did a wonderful uh, oral history uh, with uh, all of you from MASH. Do you ever get tired of talking about those days? You know, I don't. Uh, Mark, I think Mark did a wonderful um, uh, article uh, about the show, and he and I, I put him in touch. He contacted me, and I put him in touch with a number of members of the cast that he hadn't been able to reach. Um, I suppose, you know, I guess I guess gave the example of David Stiers, I think, other than David, everybody. I mean, we've all gone on and done other things, and um, and are happy to have had careers beyond Mash. But I don't think, uh, other than David, anybody wants to just sort of put it behind them. I think we're all so proud of what we did with that show and the wonderful um, relationships we developed, both with the com- the company and the and the people around us, the production staff and the writers and all of those folks. Um, and um, it, it really was, you know, there, there's sort of a cliche that says, well, you know, a television show, they, they become a family. But <laughs> I, I know of television shows where people who work together hated each other. So <laughs> so it's not always the kind of a happy family that ours was. Um, and it, we still get together. Uh, Dan Wilcox, who was... Thad's writing partner has put together a memorial um, evening for Thad that's just uh, coming up this end of this week that we'll all uh, be attending and uh, swapping stories and remembering and wishing that things were different than they are. Uh, well, Mike, it's always a treat for us to get to talk about MASH with you, but also to get your thoughts, uh, as always, uh, very wonderful thoughts about how to how to heal the divisions in this country and get us on the right path. As always, we appreciate you making time for us. Well, it's a pleasure, Rick, uh, Mitch, uh, Rich. I'm sorry. And, and let me just say that for motivation, the people who are listening really need to think about the catastrophic climate changes that are mm. upon us and that... One of the things that is being that we and our not only our children but our children's children are going to suffer for is the unwillingness of people in this country and too many people in other parts of the world to not recognize the danger that looms before us and and really get serious about doing something about it. Well said, Mike. Thank you, as always. Great to talk with you again. Uh, We wish you good health, and we'll talk with you again down the road. Terrific. Thanks very much. That's Mike Farrell here on Downtown, the podcast. When we come back, we'll hear from Chris Matthews, who talks about the uh, book Bobby Kennedy, A Raging Spirit, now out in paperback. That's after this quick word from our friends at Cross Insurance. Since its founding in 1954, Cross Insurance has grown from a small family-owned agency that started in Bangor, Maine, into one of the largest super regional insurance agencies in New England. With the network of offices throughout New England, Cross Insurance works with top carriers to provide maximum value to you, your family, and your business. We are proud to be the official insurance broker of the New England Patriots and would welcome the chance to provide security for your team. For more information, visit CrossInsurance.com. Cross Insurance, where security meets strength. Five years ago, a couple of friends got together to create balanced beers that pay respect to the rich German tradition of brewing, layered with the nuance and eccentricity of modern brewing methods. And Nice Brewing Company was born. Based in Limerick, Maine, right in the foothills of the White Mountains, Dustin and Tim combine a love of science, beer, and their German heritage for truly unique brews. 
Now, whether it's the nice weiss, the sun and shine of your IPAs, stouts, porters, any of the seasonal offerings, you'll love what they've got brewing at Nice, now available all over the state of Maine in cans, and you can ask for it at your favorite bar or restaurant. That is Nice Brewing Company. Work hard, play hard, be nice. I like that theme. It reaches out and grabs you. Well, kind of like our next guest does. Here on Downtown, the host of MSNBC's Hardball, uh, Chris Matthews. Uh, lots of experience as both a journalist and in the political world and as an author. He's written a wonderful book previously on President John F. Kennedy, and he's got a new book, new in paperback anyway, called Bobby Kennedy, A Raging Spirit. We had a chance to talk recently with Chris Matthews about Bobby Kennedy and the book. I have to ask this. Uh, does does being the son of Mary Teresa Shields give you a unique <laughs> understanding into the Kennedy mindset? You've done your homework, yeah. Uh, I keep remembering, trying to remind, is it T.H. Teresa or the other one? <laughs> uh, my mom was as Irish as you can be, and... Um, the funny thing is, we're both, besides the family, I just got my 23 and me. I'm 94% Irish and British, because they're all entangled. Um, yeah, my mom was Irish Catholic, Row House Irish. My grandmother on the other side was Protestant, orange woman, like Mrs. Doubtfire. She spoke with an incredible <laughs> accent. She was an immigrant. That was an interesting mother-in-law relationship. <laughs> the two sides of the Irish, the green and the orange. Yeah, she was the real thing, and I think she. Uh, the great story in our family was our, our family was Republican. My dad was certainly, and even though he converted to Catholicism from his Episcopalianism, he um, voted always Republican. And um, I sort of had it out with him. I said, "How can you vote against Kennedy? He's Catholic." He said, "I'm a Republican," which is interesting. <laughs> and then Mom secretly voted for Jack Kennedy and never told anybody but my younger brother Jim, and said, "Never tell your father." So as long as she lived, she. <laughs> this is such I I think it explains why I'm kind of a hybrid. I'm kind of hard to figure something. Well, it's interesting. You point out in the book that uh Bobby Kennedy, called Black Robert by his brother Jack, was the yeah. son who was the most different of all from his father Joe. Well, his father wasn't a nice guy. I mean, I'll just be generous about it. Said he wasn't a generous guy. He wasn't he didn't care for people who had problems. Uh, there's that great thing I come up with in the book where one of the family friends said how wonderful it is how generous Bobby is and how he shares and everything. And the old man says, I don't know where he got that from. <laughs> <laughs> it's hardly a tribute from the father to the son, but Bobby cared maybe because the father called him the runt. How's that for a comment? Because he was shorter than his brothers. And to call him the runt to a boy especially, I think, I don't think girls like hearing it either, but the boy hearing it with all the taller brothers going being called the runt. And I think it, Bobby did find a way of understanding, even though he was born to wealth, what it was like to be overlooked and not being one of one of the country's chosen people. I mean, he was uh, he knew what it was like to be uh, skipped over. His work, and you spend a lot of time in the book talking about his work with Senator Joseph McCarthy, and, and that was certainly complicated, but I thought it was interesting that uh, while he had that familial relationship with uh, Joe McCarthy, who had dated his sister, was a great family friend, it was really the tactics of Roy Cohn that pushed him to the other side. Yeah, he um, Roy Cohn was an off-putting person. You can see it in his face. I mean, he had a face that was frightening. There's something about that expression he had. He was a conniving bad guy. 
and uh, but McCarthy loved them. And, and I think there was some of that rivalry there where uh, Bobby envied the fact that how much, how much McCarthy loved uh, uh, Roy Cohn. Roy Cohn made McCarthy famous. He was a, uh, or helped make him famous. He was a real PR guy who knew how to get headlines. And McCarthy loved headlines. And there was a great scene, it was really right out of the New Testament, where Bobby said that, uh, McC- that Roy Cohn took McCarthy out over a hill and showed him all the beautiful things. You know, that great scene from the Bible from when Jesus was taken out by the devil and told, if you bow out before me, I'll give you the whole world. <laughs> and uh, and that's the way Bobby looked at, at Roy Cohn, as the devil. He did. I told this to Ethel. She was kind of taken aback by that that biblical reference, but it's clear as day what he was saying. And, and as you suggest, there was a real complication in that. Bobby had tremendous empathy for the old for Joe McCarthy, who was drinking himself to death for years, just drinking and drinking hard liquor and killing himself. And, and when he finally, he, he would go visit him when he was drunk and sit with him. And remember he put it in his diary once, Bart McCarthy drunk last three hearings. Mm. And yet when he was going after the rackets, after Roy, after, after Jimmy Hoffa and Giancana and all those horrible guys, McCarthy was very supportive of him, even though he was drunk. He was supporting him. And then when he died, uh, Kathleen told me that they were at, his daughter told me that Bobby, her father, was driving in the car to the National Airport, now Reagan Airport, and got the word on the car radio that McCarthy had finally killed himself with booze. And he was so distraught, he drove around the airport three times. And then he went to the funeral and sat in this car so nobody would see he was there uh, out in Appleton, Wisconsin, for the burial of his friend. I mean, Jack and Teddy both said those, that was the most admirable thing they could say about their brother is that he stuck personally with Joe McCarthy despite his villainy. We're talking with Chris Matthews about his book, Bobby Kennedy, A Raging Spirit. You write that after the events of Dallas, Bobby Kennedy's focus changed from fighting against villains to fighting for the victims. Yeah, I think he, um, first of all, it's hard for, look, I was affected just as a kid, not a kid, as a college student when Jack was killed. I don't think, I ever looked at politics the same way again, and um, and I think a lot of the country my age was affected that way. Uh, you never forget where you were, how you felt, everything. And um, and this had nothing to do with politics. I was a young Republican then in those days. It had to do with root performance, <laughs> finding him fascinating and caring about the guy and wanting to meet him actually. But Bobby was his whole life starting in '52 was devoted to his brother, and uh, that's all he thought about. All he did the Cuban Missile Crisis, the fights over civil rights. It was Bobby fighting at his brother's side as his protector. And he hears on the phone from J. Edgar Hoover that his brother's dead. He just calls up and says, your brother's dead. Mm. And um, he's in shock. And I think he eventually did decide he was going to look out for victims. And he wasn't going to go be quite the terror that he was before against his enemies. Maybe he saw that politics had gotten too too violent, too, too extreme, and he wasn't going to be part of that anymore. I think we all went through it and said, I'm not going to ever be as passionate on one side or the other after that. We said, this has gone too far, this hatred. And even though it was, the crime was committed by a, you know, a, a um, Castro person, a pro-Castro leftist who had become disillusioned with Soviet communism and had fallen in love and become infatuated with Castro uh, by all evidence, that um, 
everybody felt bad about it. And I think Bobby felt the worst, and I think Bobby stopped being so passionate a politician. I don't think he was as much a hater after that. I don't think so. His run for the presidency is one that he agonized over, especially when Gene McCarthy uh, got in the race, and, and you write so well about that. And, and he wasn't a natural campaigner, but he certainly warmed up to it on the trail, and the reaction that people had to him out on the campaign trail was so visceral. What did people see in Bobby Kennedy? They saw a relic. They saw a living person of, of the brother who looked enough like him. And one of the great ironies is that when Bobby lay on the floor there at that kitchen of the uh, Ambassador Hotel in Los Angeles when he's dying there, he looked more like Jack than ever. I think people, when they saw him starting in Atlantic City at the convention in 64 when he came up on that stage and quoted from Shakespeare, I just people just they thought they were seeing Jack back again in a way, but they're seeing his brother. It was there's nothing like it's chilling. There's nothing like in American politics to have a president shot down in his youth and when he's young and great looking and his wife's gorgeous and there's all this display of romance and and then to have the brother come back within less than a year later and, and stand up on the stage in Atlantic City. It, it just there's everything like it. Never. And uh and I think people on the Democratic side especially, but not just them, were wowed by him. And I think he was not happy with it. When he would have a big crowd up in New York when he ran for Senate, he'd say to his buddy, Paul Corbin, it's not for me, it's for Jack. They're here for Jack. He could tell. But by the end, in 68, they were there for him. You wrote and, a... uh, It was clear. I mean, after what happened in Indianapolis when Martin Luther King was killed and he walked into a, a ghetto, we called them in those days, a, a tough black neighborhood in, in a big city and had to tell them that Martin Luther King had been shot by a white guy, and there he is, a white guy, standing among all these African-Americans, and he's telling them that Martin Luther King's just been killed. They didn't know it. In fact, I got the tape from NBC, and he said to the guy next door, asked the guy, do they know yet? And the guy said no. It's, it's stunning drama. It's like nothing like it in Bobby's life. Anybody else's. We're, we're in such a time. Of a movie or you know, Lawrence of Arabia or something. Mm. There's nothing like it, this kind of drama. We're in such a time of extreme polarization, and certainly the news of the last 24 hours accentuates that even more. Sure does. Could we, could a Bobby Kennedy, could somebody like that find a way to somehow bring us together and bridge this gulf that seems greater than ever these days in America? Well, he tried, and he tried uh, after King was killed, and he tried. And when he's taken to his burial in Arlington uh, with his brother, he... Uh, that train ride, I've got all the pictures, and the, the crowds were white and black, and I don't know who today can do that. I mean, the white working-class guys with their salutes, uh, the ex-military guys, you can tell with their whole families lined up regimentally. Nothing. That kind of patriotic belief in a guy like Bobby, I don't know if we have it anymore. We're, it's all tied into patriotism. I think it helped that the Kennedy brothers all fought in World War II, where they tried. One was killed in the war, one was nearly killed. They were such gung-ho patriots, such gung-ho anti-communists later on, that it was easy for working-class people of every side to say, yeah, they're one of us. And uh, they weren't lefty intellectuals. That's, they were not that. They were not elitists. Uh, they're not part of that world. And uh, they, they, were, uh, they were just different. They weren't like the Clintons or something today. They weren't divisive that way. They were more like part of the people. And 
And I, I think that that he would have really tried to unite black and white because that's what he was doing at the end. He would drive around in, in, in Gary, Indiana, a city of old ethnic people, Eastern Europeans, where the blacks were moving in, and there's all the usual things that go on in that kind of situation. And he'd drive around the car with Tony Zale, the former middleweight champion who had beaten Rocky Graziano. And he, he drove around the car with him on one side and Mayor Hatcher, the first black mayor, on the other side of him. He would really try to display unity in a way that sounds almost hokey. But he's the only guy I know who's ever tried to do it. He really tried to unite black and white in the same He wouldn't accept the fact that he was going to be for the steel worker and against the black kid in the ghetto. But he's going to be for both. And he said, why are you guys fighting? You've got the same interests. I mean, it's, it sounds romantic, but that's who he was. He was trying to unite people. Chris, thank you so much. I love the book. It's a real treat to talk with you. We appreciate thank it. Thank you for reading it. That's Chris Matthews here on Downtown, the podcast discussing his book, Bobby Kennedy, A Raging Spirit. Thanks to Chris. Thanks as well to Mike Farrell. And thanks to you for being with us. Tell your friends, spread the word. Get them to subscribe as well to Downtown, the podcast, which is brought to you every single week by Cross Insurance, where security meets strength, and by Nice Brewing Company, German-style beer from the woods of Maine. We'll see you next time on Downtown.